Maine is one of the only states in the U.S. that has the ability to fish for glass eels, which is the starting process of eel aquaculture. Okay. But the entirety of that fishery is getting exported to farms in China, and we're importing back finished products. Welcome to RAS Talk, the podcast on recirculating aquaculture systems and sustainable food production. Brought to you by RASTAC Magazine, the premier publication for recirculating aquaculture systems professionals. This episode is sponsored by OxyGuard International. Secure, grow, evolve. Improve your production with tailored and targeted technology. Hello again. My name is Jean Coden. I am the editor of Hatchery International and RASTAC Magazine. And I am back with another episode this month, and I think it's a really good one. Sarah Rademacher is my guest today. She is the founder and CEO of American Unagi, which is a RAS eel farm north of Maine in the United States. In addition to this unique species to talk about today, and you'll hear later that she provides some great details on how her RAS production operates, I think Sarah also offers a great story of entrepreneurship. The company is experiencing some success right now, and it's positioning itself to expand and scale up. And I'm glad she was able to share some of her company's behind the scenes thought processes around that. Um, we, we don't always get to have that kind of insight from the executive level of these companies. So it, it was really great to sit down and truly talk to her about that. Without further ado, please enjoy the RAS Talk podcast with Sarah Rademacher. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. I'm happy to have you here and bring with you a new species in RAS to share with us today. Awesome. I'm happy to be here and thanks for the invite. Let's start with American Unagi's humble beginnings. Uh, did I hear correctly that you start you first started out with a prototype system in your basement? I did indeed. Um, all good startups I heard are either in the basement or the garage and uh, yeah, right. figured it, it would be a good, uh, good place to start. But it was more having been in aquaculture uh, as an industry and, and also having, you know, seen um, some of the hurdles that other companies had faced at this point. It was really important to me to uh, get my hands on fish. So I looked at the numbers, the economics of eel, and it looked great, but it's not until you actually see the fish and see the species in action that you can really feed into, will this business work? So that was a really important first step was to just get my hands on some eels. Um, how long ago was this that you started? So I first had this idea, um, well, it really was said out loud in 2012. So it was, um, you know, over 10 mm. years ago at this point. And um, we didn't, uh, I didn't do those first base manuals until 2014. Okay. And how long have you been in aquaculture at this point? So I had, um, I had gone to school for it uh, down at Auburn University and studied aquaculture there. Um, but before that, I had always had fish and fish tanks and um, had worked at um, a pet store with a large uh you know, RAS system for displays. So I, um, yeah, I, I was playing around with aquaculture since I was a kid really, or, or at least small recirculating systems. Wow. That's really fascinating. Um, so when you first built this prototype system, what did that look like? 
Um, it was a really simple system. So I had uh, a couple of Rubbermaid tubs, essentially, uh, feed troughs, and um, built a small uh, biofilter, um, almost like a glorified little trickle filter you do for saltwater systems. And yeah, just got essentially a handful of eels. It was about 100 eels to be able to put into the system. And that gave me a little bit of insight to some of the important kind of first steps with these fish. So one, like, how do I get my hands on eels? How do I get seed? Um, you know, things like the first feeds and also just kind of how their initial growth rates are, how their behavior is in system. So that was um, a really important kind of first step to understanding what eels were like. Wow, that's really fascinating. Um, what drew you to eels specifically in a RAS system? Like what piqued your interest about that particular species and how to farm that? When I came back to Maine, it was with the idea of starting an aquaculture business. And I spent a number of years looking around at what species were a good fit and were appropriate for Maine. And also I, I knew that I wanted to do RAS and I, um, really, I saw what was happening with our eel fishery. So Maine is one of the only states in the U.S. that has the um, ability to fish for glass eels, which is the starting process of eel aquaculture. Okay. But the entirety of that fishery is getting exported to farms in China, and we're importing back finished products. So it was really a kind of... Um, several factors coming together that really brought eels onto my radar. And it was that fishery, but also knowing that RAS for eels was not a new thing. You know, it had, it was one of the few fish that had been really done successfully in RAS for decades at that point. Wow. I didn't know that. So what, were there other like eel RAS projects that you were looking to for reference? So eel aquaculture has been happening for, um, a very long time um, in ponds. Um, and I mean, it goes back to, you know, Roman times on a very extensive kind of aquaculture level. But more recently, um, in the 80s, the the really in the Netherlands, they were developing eel aquaculture RAS systems. And they're really kind of led uh, the growth of that that industry. So I really looked to what was being done in Europe with the European eel and their RAS farms to what we could do in Maine, which is similar climate, a similar eel species, and um, yeah, bringing, bringing that technology to the US. So how long did you have that prototype, that first prototype before you began, I guess, courting early stages investment? And how did it come from that basement to, you know, like a startup incubator program? You know, very quickly, I realized, wow, this this is a really incredible fish to work with. Um, I think by the fall, I harvested some of those eels and smoked them. And that really was like, wow, this this is a really fantastic fish. And from there, I wanted to scale up and do more of a commercial system, uh, still on a small scale, uh, just because I, I was, you know, still working and, you know, going to a large scale RAS system requires a lot of capital. So I wanted to test it out, do a little bit larger system in an incubator space that I started to rent and um, took it to the next level and then wanted to test the market with some fish. So 
That next stage of the incubator program and kind of incubation started in 2015. That was the point where I sat down and said, all right, how big do I want to go? How am I going to get there? And really started to put the plan together for scaling. Wow, that's incredible. Um, And I'm really fascinated about the fact that, you know, like, how do you kind of gain the confidence to decide it's time for the next step? You know what I mean? Like, what kind of how many production cycles, for example, did you go through from that first prototype in the basement in 2012? um, And I guess three years later, going into the incubator program, you know, what led to gaining confidence to kind of scale up and then scale up again kind of thing? Yeah, it was laying out a a game plan. Um, A lot of it was not only looking at the steps to to build out a business like this, but also the skill sets that I was going to need. You know, I came from aquaculture um, and production, but I had no experience with financing or capitalization of one of these farms um, or Mm -hmm. building one out. So it was who do I need to connect to, to help me do this? And I got involved very quickly in some of the entrepreneurship programs that Maine offered and that were in my community. And that helped me think about scaling, about growth, about, um, you know, financing. And it was a really important step. I mean, having an idea is one thing, but, but taking it to the next level uh, took um, it's a lot. It's really yeah. difficult. What did those early stages look like? I mean, was it hard to raise capital for such, um, to me, a novel species in rats? Because when I think of, you know, commercial rats, I often think of finfish, specifically Atlantic salmon. And so many of those rats projects today are based on Atlantic salmon. Um, so was it hard to kind of educate investors and get that initial capital to get behind this particular project? Yeah, it was absolutely a, a challenge. Um, and also for me, you know, I like I had mentioned, I had never raised financing for uh, mm-hmm. anything. So it for me, it was not only having to go out and raise money, but it was learning the language. You know, I'm a fish farmer by heart and by nature. Uh, So, you know, speaking to finance groups and um, putting together a capital structure was something I had to learn how to do. And I connected to some really great mentors um, and I connected with a business partner who um, ended up really having that skill set that complemented my aquaculture experience. And that was really key for helping me lay out a plan for scaling successfully and how to raise money and and bring the right types of investors also into into the operation. That's amazing. Um, so what does this look like? What does the American Unagi business model look like now? Like we talked about, you know, the early stages of building a prototype and then going into a startup incubator program, but maybe sk- skipping, um, I think, almost 10 years. What does the business model look like now? I did have a five-year plan, um, but that didn't include uh, COVID. Uh, so I, <laughs> right, was, of course. I, I was originally planning to... Um, to really have a scaled commercial facility by 2020. And capital raising took me longer than I expected. Um, but ultimately, that was a combination of wanting to make sure I had the right investor type on board. Um, and I was really fortunate to to put together financing that not only was 
a really great group of investors, but also um, a really supportive uh, regional bank that that came in. So that was really a big big piece that took me a little bit longer to be able to to build out into our plan. So we ran uh, several cycles. So I had at that point when we started to build our commercial site uh, in Waldeboro, we had six, we had five years of growing out yields. And um, we had actually at that point scaled to a larger incubator system where we were doing about half a million yields. Uh, I grew my team and I had at that point um, three staff who were um, part of that operation. And that was really important for kind of our scale up path is is really building out the team, both on the ground and the the groups that were supporting the business growth. So what does that system look like now? You mentioned that the first site was in Wilderboro. Is that where it currently is? I spent a good amount of those first years looking for site selection. So having Mm -hmm. um, a good place to build a site is also a really important thing. And um, it's not only for, you know, finding the right water source, um, the right land, but also a town that wants to be supportive. So we, um, we looked up and down the coast and... I actually had been driving by this town, which um, to get to one of my incubator sites and met uh, the town planner, um, kind of got connected to the community. And it, it was just a really great fit. The The town actually has a large um, amount of elver harvesters or the glacial harvesters. So in terms of a town that saw the value of this fishery um, and the connection to the aquaculture industry, uh, it was it was really a, a really fantastic fit. So we chose the site in Midcoast, Maine, started construction. Originally, we were supposed to start in March of 2020. That didn't happen. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> um, timing. Yeah. And um, and yeah, we ended up finally being able to start a year later in April of 21. And that was for the build out of the site that we're at now. So it's a uh, 27,000 square foot building that has uh, all of our production. And we also do all of our processing in-house. So that was something I had to build into the business and our business model pretty early because no one wanted to process eels. (laughs) So (laughs) we had to figure out how to do that ourselves. Why was it because no one just had the the proper equipment or the proper skill set to process eels? What was that? Um, what oh, was the challenge oh, there? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It's a little bit of both. The um, uh, fish processing, there's not as much happening uh, of that in Maine, let alone with a species like eel that is unique. It's different. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't see the value in the fish that I did. And and also um, at that point, you know, people were struggling with labor and finding people to cut fish. So I decided very early on, like, you know, let's let's build this into the business so that we've got control of that value added process. And it also allows us to adapt to the market. So whether that's selling a live product or selling um, processed products, we have that ability to to adapt and really make our own value of our own fish. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, before we go into sort of the technical detail of your current production facility, I kind of wanted to have a discussion with you about, you know, at what price do you sell your products? Like what is the profitability of selling eel products in America? Yeah. So that was, um, 
something we did early on was look at the, you know, the economics. That's a really important um, piece of, of any business. Um, so one thing that was really critical to actually making our business work is having that value added opportunity. So we not only sell a live product, um, but we can also fillet it and then we can also smoke it. So depending on which form you're in, you uh, have some different price points there, but you know, we can have, you know, a product that is anywhere from $11 a pound to, you know, over $40 a pound, um, depending on which product form we go into. So wow, that's that, incredible. Yeah, it was is it the was $40 a, really... a pound the the smoked and processed one or? Yep. The smoked eel is our um, most valuable product, but it also, you know, requires the the highest level of work through the whole right. process. That was a really important kind of point for me in terms of the price point to sell your products, because um, last time I looked at the, you know, the NASDAQ salmon index, it kind of offered, I think we were measuring salmon at about $6, $6.6 per kilo. Um, if we're going by pounds, that's maybe about $3 per pound, which is an incredible, um, and comparing that to, you know, the live eel, I'm guessing at the $11 per pound or $40 with the smoked and processed, that's an incredible sort of price range and a profit margin that's really attractive. But um, I don't know, should we have more eel projects in the U.S.? <laughs> yeah, one of the things that was attractive with the eel is that it isn't, at the same level as salmon in, in terms of it being more of a commodity traded fish. And that's comes back to a lot of it being this limited um, seed supply. So every single eel at this point that is going into the market, 90% um, of them are farm raised, but they all start with a wild caught juvenile. So that is a really big limiting factor to um, aquaculture um, of eel. So oh, okay. I see. to me, it was, you know, what we did with American Unagi is the fish that were being caught on Maine's coast, these glass eels, uh, were going into farms abroad and mixed with eels from all over the world that are not necessarily coming from fisheries that are well-regulated or monitored. And Maine has done a huge amount of work and our harvester of harvesters have done a huge amount of work to make sure our fishery is well-regulated and monitored and managed. But that work was kind of stopping there if those eels are going and mixing in with farms with eels from all over the world. So what I saw in connecting our aquaculture facility to Maine's glass eel fishery is an opportunity to create a product that carries a lot more accountability and traceability than any other eel um, that's out in the marketplace. So that was a really big driver to me was seeing an opportunity with this fish to do it better. There's opportunity for more eels and to keep more of our glass eel fishery here in Maine, um, growing out in Maine. So it's on my radar to build more eel farms, but we're going to get this first one off the ground first. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about that. I had a former co-host, his name is Brian Vinci, and he's the director of Freshwater Institute. So he was the person to kind of lead these technical details, but I learned a lot from him. So hopefully I can kind of put on my Brian hat and we can talk a little bit about the technical details of the facility design. So can you take me through it? Let's start with the 
production capacity and, um, you know, the water exchange, uh, why don't you give me an overview of what the site looks like of the whole system design? Yeah. So one important thing with eels is that we, um, we have a separate nursery. So when those glass eels come into our facility, they're kept separate. Eel grow out takes anywhere from eight months to over two years, and they have a really variable growth rate. So at any given time in our production cycle, we have several year classes of eels. So when those eels come into our facility, um, making sure that they're healthy and in good condition is a really important first step with our farm. So they go into a separate system. It's essentially two small separate RAS systems. With our design, we are very much in line with um, the system designs that have been used in the Netherlands for decades um, with really minimal improvements. So relatively simple systems. We have a um, series of tanks, and our filtration is consistent with a, it's a drum filter that removes our solids. And then we use trickle towers for our biofilters. So we pump the water once and that is then goes up to our trickle tower and is gravity fed back through an oxygenation system and into the tank. So pretty simple system design, which is something um, I am very much behind um, when it comes to running an aquaculture facility. Mm -hmm. um, what is your water source? So we use a well um, that's a freshwater well. Okay. And is that like a local river or? No, it's, it's uh, groundwater. Groundwater. groundwater yeah. Yep. Okay. Sorry. This might be a naive question. How large are those tanks? Like how many eels per tank? What does the density look like in those um, tanks? Um, It depends on what stage. So early life stages of our eels, you know, we've got lower densities. Uh, the higher life stages, we are able to grow very high. And that's one of the really incredible things with this fish is they can grow at very high densities. And that makes them really ideal for land-based aquaculture, given, you know, these systems are capital intensive. They oftentimes, you know, with something like salmon, you have to build really massive facilities to make those $3 a pound economics work. But with eels, not only do you have a really valuable fish, but you have one that grows at very high densities. So our stocking densities for our larger fish can be as high as 150 kilos per cubic meter. And those fish are very happy at that, that rate. What is their feed regimen like? Again, eels have been grown for a very long time, so we follow um, what they're doing in Europe. So we've uh, there's the three major feed companies in Europe will make an eel feed in an eel specific diet. So it's a it's a high protein, high fat diet. Um, again, depending on the life stages, there's some variation, but they have really worked things out for res eel feed abroad. Um, do you have any concerns with off flavors? Is that a challenge in the same way that um, fin fish experience off flavors? Not so far, but as a fish farmer, I am always paranoid about that. Um, we do go through a purge system before we process or sell our fish. So we do do that as a precaution um, just to make sure that our fish clear our gut, their guts, they cool down um, before we transport or, hard, or uh, process and make sure that flavors and all of that are steady and stable. Wow. Thank you so, so much for sharing all of these details. I wanted to kind of get into um, a little bit of an insight to your day-to-day -day as well. Um, you know, 
there are not many that we've talked to that are both, you know, the main farmer and the CEO of the company. So what does that day to day look like in terms of how do you balance both? We are a small farm in comparison to a lot of the big operations out there. So, you know, we've got 10 staff, um, but that includes our processing, our farm team, our sales and our office admin. So I am very much involved, especially during this, you know, the scale up of our operation in a lot of the operations of the farm. It's weird to me to not be on the farm at least uh, every day. So I try and take a day off here or there, but I'm very much involved with a lot of our, our operations. I am, however, uh, and this is going to be a shameless plug, am looking to hire a new facilities manager. So any of the RazTech uh, folks out there who are looking for a position with a phenomenal company and a very cool fish, um, I am hiring. And there's a, uh, a job description on my LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, um, like speaking of that, I know that American Unagi is in the process of expanding. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we finished, um, got the last contractor out of our building at the end of last year and have been scaling up the operation. So we're in our second year of production. Um, and by the end of next year, we'll be hitting our kind of production metrics. So our farm is built to produce 240 metric tons. So we will be hitting those numbers at the end of uh, next year. In the near future, are you looking to, you know, you mentioned before creating more eel farms like what does that you know in your dream of dreams what does that look like we are we are definitely looking at um at expanding and and a lot of that is finding the right partners so uh eel aquaculture like i mentioned one of the nice things is that you can build smaller facilities that are um economical as a business so we have um uh, established partnerships to build additional facilities uh, on the main coast. So it is on our radar and we're currently um, in the process of looking at other sites. When you're looking to scale up, again, kind of looking back to, you know, that first prototype to scaling up to the incubation and then, you know, taking the leap forward to commercial size at you know, to now coming up at 240 metric tons. Um, can you share in terms of like, what are the challenges or what are what are the risks that you're trying to mitigate as you continue to scale up? Yeah, scaling and, and building to um, capacity is, is a big challenge and doing that smoothly um, is a really big challenge. I think one of the things that, that you know, we've done as an approach to mitigating risk is that early experience was really key, not only for myself, but my team, you know, so my um, production manager came on in 2018 with me and she's, uh, you know, been working with these fish um, at the other incubation um, sites that we were at. So having that experience, knowing the fish, knowing the systems, is a huge piece of scaling successfully. Um, starting up a new farm, you know, it's it's going to have challenges. You're going to have um, bumps, but understanding the systems and knowing um, knowing your fish is one of the biggest things that a group can do as they scale. Yeah, absolutely. And I really commend you for that achievement because you started out with an idea and you knew that 
this was going to be a business that you wanted to pursue and grow. And it's sort of, it's on its way, COVID aside, <laughs> even yeah. you know, despite COVID even. Yeah. You know, that was actually one of those things um, that really drove home that, you know, this business and this opportunity has a place um, that through COVID, you know, we saw continued sales of our product. We saw a continued interest in a locally produced eel. And that was so encouraging um, to, to keep pushing through a very challenging time um, for everybody, but also, you know, where we were at, at the business. So, um, so yeah, that, that if anything, you know, that we made, made it through COVID and really saw um, growth in, in our farm through that period was a, a big piece that uh, kept us going and growing. Wow. That's incredible. And even despite these challenges, as you mentioned, you know, the consumer base was there. So a lot of that comes down to the value proposition of our eels, you know, what I saw as a big opportunity in growing an eel locally was to be able to offer an eel that had accountability and traceability. And that's something specifically with eel. Um, it's a huge issue with imported product. Like there, because this um, aquacultured fish still depends on a wild caught juvenile, um, there is globally a big issue with poaching and with lack of regulation on some of these eel fisheries. And that's where we really make our product stand out is we're working with eel that can be traced from the harvesters uh, and grown on farms without the use of hormones or antibiotics um, to be able to uh, produce a fish that you can trust and that consumers can trust. I'm assuming that the smoked eel is um, your most premium product. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And, um, you know, what what has been the consumer feedback for that? So smoked eel is really popular um, in Europe. And I had heard that, you know, when I had those basement eels. So I actually smoked those first eels and was really blown away with how good eel is smoked eel is. So that became a product that was always on my radar. Um, it's very much in line with the kind of American food preference smoked things. Um, and it's, you know, different from smoked salmon. So it's a unique, unique product, but fully cooked, really rich, super satisfying. Um, so yeah, that's one of my favorite, favorite ways to eat eel. Um, but a lot of Americans have gotten exposed to eel and we're eating more and more eel uh, because of the growing sushi industry. So that's really one of the big reasons that I can do this business now. And 20 years ago, I couldn't because, you know, sushi and eel consumption was not as high as it is now. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say it is one of my favorite proteins in sushi. So I am on the eel train. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're you're not the first person. And that was something that was really cool early on when I started um, those uh, that first um, larger incubator is I wanted to know, like, do people really care about a locally grown eel and do they even want to eat eel? And and yeah, the answer was yes, especially in sushi. We found that it's a lot of people's you know favorite fish, but it's also a lot of folks who are a little bit hesitant about eating a raw fish, they'll gravitate towards eel because it's one of the few right. cooked items. So yeah. 
Well, thank you so much, Sarah. We're coming up to the end of our podcast here, but I want to thank you for sharing your insights into American Unagi. Um, it's a unique species and a unique grass project, but I feel like there are elements there in terms of, you know, the early stages and the entrepreneurship in the beginning and, you know, scaling and overcoming challenges. Those are all elements that any grass project experiences and and people can learn from that. So I, I want to thank you for sharing that information with us. Absolutely. I mean, I'm when it comes down to it, I want to see the aquaculture industry grow in the U.S. And um, specifically in Maine, I saw an opportunity to, to really push the growth of the industry here. And uh, yeah, trying to lead by example and, and be a, an example of success for what land-based aquaculture can be in the U.S. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sarah. I certainly did. Um, one thing I'd like to share that we talked about after our podcast recording is this uh, demand for skilled RAS workers. I think this is something all RAS operators are thinking about as they are launching their projects and as they continue to expand their production capacity and all of that stuff. Um, within the United States, I'm aware of some great initiatives that are taking place in the state of Maine in terms of creating opportunities for training and building that workforce. I can specifically think of the work that the Maine Aquaculture Association is doing in terms of creating occupational standards and apprenticeships. Um, there's also some collaboration with University of Maine in terms of making sure their aquaculture programs are going to be relevant for the new RAS projects that are popping up in that state. Um, I know that there is also another consortium based in the United States called SAS2 or SAS Squared, which is headed by Jonathan Zohar, who was also a previous guest um, on this podcast. Um, his consortium group is made up of researchers and also industry leaders that are taking a look at some initiatives around this topic as well. I'll share those links in the show notes for you guys. And speaking of extra links to articles, photos, videos, and other media related to this episode and all our episodes are available on our website at rastechmagazine.com slash podcast, R-A-S-T-E-C-H magazine.com slash podcast. As always, please consider sharing this episode with your network and on social media. It truly helps us find our audience and helps us grow. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss a new episode. Thanks again to our sponsor, OxyGuard International. Secure, grow, evolve. Improve your production with tailored and targeted technology. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.